I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guests today are poets, teachers, and community leaders, Kathy Clarick, founder of Exchange for Change, a nonprofit teaching writing in prisons, and Scott Cunningham, founder and executive director of the O Miami Poetry Festival, which celebrates Miami, Florida through the lens of poetry. Together, they host the Florida Prison Poet Laureate Initiative. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom, and there may be some background noise and background interference, which I'll hope you'll forgive for today's show. Kathy Clarick is the author of Madame Dread, a tale of love, voodoo, and civil strife in Haiti, and a contributor to two anthologies, So Spoke the Earth, and Women, Writing and Prison. In 2010, she received a Knight International Journalism Fellowship to train journalists in investigative reporting in Haiti, where she spent half of the last 24 years reporting for print, radio, and television, including Time, The New York Times, ABC, and NPR. Kathy started facilitating writing workshops in the correctional system in 2009 and began the writing exchanges with academic institutions in 2013. She founded Exchange for Change, a nonprofit that teaches writing in prisons and youth residential centers in 2014. P. Scott Cunningham is a poet and essayist and the author of Yate Veo, selected by Billy Collins for the Miller Williams Poetry Series. His writing has appeared in numerous journals and reviews, as have his translations of Alejandro Pizarnik, Cesar Viejo, and Frank Baez. Scott is the founder and director of O oh Miami, a nonprofit organization that celebrates Miami, Florida through the lens of poetry, and the co-founder and executive director of Hialei Books, a regional publishing imprint. A featured speaker at forums, including the Aspen Institute, TEDx, and more, Scott has been named one of 20 under 40 emerging South Florida leaders by the Miami Herald, and one of 51 brilliant urbanites who are helping to build the cities of America's future by Fast Company. Together, Scott and Kathy host the Florida Prison Poet Laureate Initiative. The current laureate is Christopher Malik, and the prior poet laureate was Eduardo Martinez. Uh, Kathy and Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So to set the scene, I wanted to ask each of you to uh, share some insight into your passion for writing and what it was that catalyzed that in your lives. I'll ask each of you, and maybe we'll start with Kathy, if that's okay. It's such an interesting question because um, I'm not exactly sure when there was some switch when I began to really understand the power of writing. Although I've always written, I've always been interested in writing, and I've always loved to read. And I, I think I would answer this the same way that I would answer when people ask me about the beginning of Exchange for Change, which actually goes back to Haiti, um, and it's a, it's a weird response, but I went to Haiti, well, I first went in 1986, but I went back in 1988 because I wanted to buy handicrafts for a store, a, a nonprofit store that I was running in San Francisco, and there was a, 
um, government overthrow within a couple of days of my getting there. And a friend of mine who is very media savvy said, oh, you should do some reporting. And of course, my response was, but I'm not a reporter. And she said, oh, no, but you're there, right? And that actually began what ended up to be my career. Um, I mean, for the next 20 some years, I became a reporter. And I think that probably was the start of my understanding the power of the written word, which segued from reporting on events and what people had to say to creating Exchange for Change, which allowed people to say for themselves what was important for them. I really love, Kathy, that transition the idea of seeing the power in writing and, as you say, instead of being the person that is reporting on, allowing people the tools and the skills and the passion for themselves to report out. Scott, what about you? I think when you said the word catalyze, I feel like I always have to be recatalyzed, <laughs> like over and over again. Like that's the, that's the process. Um, so there's many moments. I mean, the, the one I thought of immediately was I had a high school teacher named David Jones who um, I think just just communicated books to me in a way that made me fall in love with them and made me want to be someone who was deeply engaged with books. Um, and he, he passed away recently, which is another reason I thought of him. Um, but he, he definitely was the first person who I would, cons- I would consider literary, who I wanted to be or wanted to be like. But then I think I had a, the similarity between my story and Kathy's is that through doing the festival, you know, I, I started on Miami, I mean, really like for me to be more engaged with poetry. Uh, but then through doing it, I realized that I didn't really understand anything about poetry <laughs> because I kept meeting people who had experiences with poetry that were so completely different from the academic experiences that I had through an MFA program and college and things like that. And, uh, and I realized that um, poetry was much bigger and much more interesting than, than I had even give, given it credit for. And, and so now a lot of what we do through on Miami is similar to, to Kathy's mission with Exchange for Change, where we're just trying to, trying to provide platforms for, for people to speak. Is it for each of you the case that you were surrounded by a context of reading and an encouragement to read when you were younger? Or is this a, you know, more, a more recent phenomenon for each of you? That actually really makes me laugh. My mother passed away last year, but she would tell this story about um, how the librarian actually came to our house when I was younger because I had taken out so many books and not returned them that they wanted to really understand what it was that was going on behind these walls. Um, And I just, yeah, I just always loved to read. Similarly, my my mom was a very big reader and, and her mom was a very, very big reader. Uh, so I think that's that's primarily where it comes from. But I, was, I mean, my memories of my mother as a child were her just yelling at me to finish my summer reading and me not wanting to do it, <laughs> wanting to go do something else and her saying, no, you got to read, you got to sit down and finish, you know, uh, Grapes of Wrath or whatever it is I had to read over the summer. Um, so, yeah, I guess she won eventually because now I'm reading. <laughs> Life keeps spinning no one's winning are we ever gonna stop pretending that there's no ending there's no mending when is this bubble gonna pop i'm sorry that our time is up whatever we had is long overdue 
when I imagine prison systems and, and correctional facilities, libraries aren't necessarily the first thing that come to mind. And so I wonder if I could ask you, Kathy, just to share, you know, what is not only the, the logistical and practical configuration for reading inside, um, you know, correctional facilities, but what are the attitudes to reading before you can sort of get your hands on, on people and open their eyes to, to its potency? You know, I think, Stuart, the easiest way to answer that question is to think about life on the prison compound, a microcosm of the world outside. And so within the, the context of a, a dormitory, for example, you will have a fair number of people who will never pick up a book, couldn't be interested in it, will spend all of their time gaming the system, you know, trying to figure out how to make a buck and how to... Uh, do something that's going to make them feel good and proud of themselves and part of a community. And on the other hand, you're going to have people who recognize that they um, want to do something with their time, whether it's the rest of their life or for however long their sentence is, and will do whatever they can to educate themselves. The problem in a prison system is that the library is in a different building. It's in an education building. So one is they have to get out of their dorm then they have to get authorized to go up to the library. And then even when you're up at the library, um, whether or not you can have access to the books and take them out is yet another issue. And then there's the selection of what's inside. For example, in addition to our partnership with OMIAMI and with Scott, we have a partnership with another nonprofit that Scott also works with called Book Lakers. Um, and we just started a booked exclamation point library where we're collecting books to be able to distribute to the various institutions. They have their own system of what is allowed inside or not. So um, if a book contains a recipe that they think might um, be a security issue, right, the book can't be allowed in. There is a long list of books that are prohibited, and then there is the discretion of the institution itself. So um, it's a process but there are certainly people who are avid readers and have gone through everything that they can given the selection of the individual institution's library. So I wonder if you might just uh, tell us a little bit about what that Florida Prison Poet Laureate program is and, and explain how and why it was created. Not long after Kathy and I met, I went to my first graduation for one of the, the workshops um, in, in DCI, which is Dade Correctional Institute. And one of the first poets I heard read was Eduardo Echo Martinez and was instantly smitten as I think everyone was with how insanely talented he is. And I started just casually referring to him as the poet laureate of DCI, um, just, you know, for fun. It was, it was not, there was no idea attached to it. I just, I just started doing it. Um, and then when Kathy heard it, she said, well, wait, maybe maybe we should actually do that. Maybe there should be a Poet Laureate, which was not something I would have ever thought of or considered. So, and that's that's how it, that's how it started. Um, and the idea was, you know, that these workshops are happening. There's incredible work being done in the workshops every, you know, every single time. How do we get more attention for what's happening inside? Um, how do we create more awareness to the talent of these individuals? Um, and then, 
you know, through the talent, maybe we can open up some eyes to uh, the basic humanity that that's inside the walls. That is not usually the narrative that's coming out of the prison system. So yeah, I would say that that's my explanation of it. And I think maybe Kathy has more. For people who are um, unfamiliar with Exchange for Change, and hopefully they'll become more familiar with both Miami and Exchange for Change after this, is we go into to correctional institutions and taught writing courses. And Eduardo Martinez was in my second class. I started back in 2014 um, with a class of 17 students, and he was in the second group. And by the time the pandemic shut us down, we had over 30 classes going. Um, and during that five-year period, um, had had more than 1,500 students. And uh, E, as we call him, um, you know, was one of the catalysts for the program growing so much, in part because of his talent and his personality. Um, and it was smart. It was cool to be a spoken word poet. And he grew the program on the compound because of his engagement in this class. And then it just, um, you know, took on a life of its own. So he definitely deserves to be recognized um, and does still deserve to be recognized for his contribution for Exchange for Change and what he's done for us, but also to really be an incredible example of the voice of what is happening inside that people are unaware of. And he does it in such a way that you actually pay attention. And I think that people might have had some preconceived idea about spoken word poetry, but the inauguration and the inaugural poet that spoke, I think it was yet another avenue to expose the incredible creativity that can come with this. And Christopher Malik, who is our new one, has a very different approach to poetry, but also is equally as brilliant as E in his own way. So, yeah. interesting to me that you provided the circumstances through these writing programs and courses for people to find writing to play with the craft of writing but that it was internal in an internal force that um, really brought something that this seed into something that was really going to flourish and thrive um I don't know if that was a surprise to you, but I'm I'm sure it was a delight. You know, what was a surprise, Stuart, was that the name Exchange for Change came from this idea that we would do exchanges with the outside world. So one of our signature classes is, let's say you were a professor at Nebraska University. So your students and, and our students would read the same thing, whether it's a poem or an essay or a short story, and they'd write a response to it. And then they would exchange papers. They would take a, a pseudonym to protect their anonymity. And then the, that exchange of papers became a dialogue that 
continue for the entire semester. So that's where the idea exchange came. But what we saw happening, which was a complete surprise to me in, in large part because I really had such little experience working inside a prison system, none actually, um, was that the exchange was really happening in the classroom. And it was happening from people on the compound who might never have spoken to each other or deliberately avoided each other. So gang members from rival gangs, um, transgender community, or people with disabilities, you know, people who would not necessarily carry on any sort of conversation were now meeting on the compound and talking and asking each other feedback on their writing and beginning conversations that started in the classroom and then spilled over onto the compounds. So yeah, there were some unex unintended wonderful consequences for it. And I think that that was one of them. Did you, Scott, have any, did you have a sense of what the outcomes could be? And, and have you been surprised by whatever the successes have been in, in, in your eyes? Yeah, I would say I'm in a state of constant surprise. <laughs> um, you know, I think ever since I met Kathy and went in for the first time, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been inside of a correctional facility before. I mean, uh, I've been to a lot of graduations now and the experience is always the same and that it's always different. And I always end up crying at the end, <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, you can never really fully prepare yourself for being in there. And, and part of the reason is that it's, uh, you know, the negative side of it, it's a very oppressive environment, even the little slice of it that, you know, we get a taste of as we walk into one part of the facility. I mean, you feel it, it's like humidity, you know, you, it, you, you feel it when you're in there. And so when, you see human beings assert themselves creatively inside of that environment. It's, it's never short of spectacular because it's not an easy thing to do. You know, I mean, if you think it's easy to get up on stage and, and, you know, and read your work, this is like that times a thousand, you know? So uh, yeah, it's, um, it's incredibly moving and it never stops being incredibly moving. What sort of impact has this had on the laureates and others around them? I feel badly speaking on their behalf um, because I think they would say this in a much more eloquent way. Chris, who was just named the Poet Laureate, I don't think we know yet. Um, he is in a prison. He was transferred out of the South Florida area about two years ago. So he's way up north. And unfortunately, I'm having a lot of trouble getting in touch with him. So we've only really been able to publish his um, inaugural poem. Uh, and we've gotten some great feedback from that. But I can say for um, Mr. Martinez, as Scott said, he's just wickedly talented. And that talent was locked away for years. I mean, he's been in for 20 years. And this was an opportunity for people to see not only his talent, but then start to recognize the fact that he cannot be the only one who is behind bars that has talent. And that is a big part of it. And for everybody who he influenced at the compound where he was, Ed Dade, and he's now been transferred, you know, they took great pride in his success. And he was a big part of our graduations, which were huge events, as Scott said. I mean, we had upwards of 50, 60, 70 people from the outside come in. People had, uh, our students had to audition in order to be able to perform their pieces because it was so competitive. And he was the master of ceremonies. And I, I know that it changed his life and exposed his 
talons and boosted his sense of self-worth, which when you think about it, you know, for except for the two hours that they were in class, 22 hours were spent hearing that they were nothing more than their um, Department of Corrections number. So, yes, I think it had a huge and has had and will continue to have a huge impact on him, but also everybody else who was part of the program gets to see the possibilities of where they, too, can go with their writing. Better get up on my way. This is the start of a new day. Feel fresher than toothpaste. Singing out, this be the new thing. New swing set. I'ma go for the loop, man. I'm a fruit gone loopy. That's the Sammy the toucan. Screaming out, who cares? My soul bare. I'm done with the cold stare. My heart hang off the tip of my shoestrings. Stay untied, that's usual. I'm not put together. Do better than you do. That's magic. I'm voodoo. You a dog playing dresser. But your getup is poo-poo. Okay, I'll fess up. I messed up. But that's true for you, too. We stare at our messages, hoping for contact, like somebody, please take us out of this nonsense. The world end after every broadcast, and to save it seem a tall task, with no cape and no cash, and a broke out, no breaks, and no stakes involved in the state of the world state. It's all lost, so we counting our birthdays. We party hard, get turned on a Thursday, and like we got it all, why we act in the first place? You raised by a screen that get up in your nerve ends. You loony tune babies better know that you perfect. Nobody can tell you one thing. Get your crazy, throw it all on the surface. Make your something from nothing. Take a shot at your purpose. Post a talk for a man who What kind of difficulties or challenges have you seen uh, with the program? And obviously, not least, Kathy just mentioned, there's one of access, which is problematic, and not, not least because of the, the pandemic. Um, but I'm kind of wondering what sort of criticisms or, or difficulties the, the program's had. Well, well I think it's, it's a tough thing to do because we can share the work, but we can't share the person. So there's an inherent um, difficulty in it, really. I mean, because there's only so much we can do. So even if E won a ton of prizes or something, I mean, what's he going to do with them on some level? I mean, obviously, it would be great. You know, I mean, some of the, you know, people who are really important in the poetry world have read his work. Some have responded to it, you know, and he's seen some of that. But, you know, there, there's only so much we can do. So, um and that's frustrating, you know. I mean, I mean, I don't think that frustration will ever go away. That um, w- whatever we provide is uh, a tiny fraction of what what is deserved. So, so that's a difficulty, I, you know. And then, like, um, I think there's also what Kathy alluded to the the idea that you know we're put in positions where we we do have to represent them, and that that's not really a position either one of us want to be in or feel like we're capable of being in because um, they should represent themselves. You know, so like, uh, you know, there have been a couple of events where E's son uh, has read his work in front of a crowd, which feels better, you know, than than someone else reading it uh, besides him. That's about as close maybe as we can get. But that's, you know, there's a huge absence there still. Um, and that absence is, is always there. So I can't ask the laureate to read the work for us. And inherently, you are forced into that position. Um, but I can see why that would be strug- a struggle at a sort of a, an ethical and, and just, a, just a personal level. All that being said, is it appropriate for you to read a, a piece of work or, or is that something that, that's not feasible at this time? You know, we want to get the work out there. You know, we want people to hear the work and we want it to be associated with, you know, in this case, the name Christopher Malick. Um, so is it ideal? No. Um, is it better than nothing? Probably. Uh, but, but Kathy, I, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on that too. 
they are all too aware of their situation. And I know that they are incredibly grateful. For every person who hears this, they might pay just a little bit more attention to what is happening in their own state with their own incarcerated population. And so I, I think any opportunity that we are presented with to share the voice of someone who is incarcerated, um, we need to take it. And, and hopefully the next time someone goes to the polls, they may not become an advocate or get involved in criminal justice reform, but they might think about uh, what their elected officials are doing and their positions. And that's one thing that all of us as Americans can take a stand on. So this poem is called Orders Up by Christopher Malik. Purpose is peripherally blind, swallowing planets whole on justice's smoke break. Where there's a happy hour, the rest are busy cleaning toilets, scrubbing ontology from under the rim. Under the dim, a lot of wisdom applies for the job, advertised on the front end of a consequence. No wonder the service is exceptionally fascist and takeouts almost encouraged over a bar made from holding cell benches. It's half past sin and I'm still waiting on my plate of resurrection to be served chilled so I can wash it down with the worst kind of blasphemy mixed with my best hypocrisy taken, not earned. But only the tips I'm giving are ones I haven't learned on an alleyway conveyor belt piercing together anarchies one part at a time. Otherwise, they're wagered against my ponder at how many games are going to be watched, waiting to see if liberalism ever actually scores. The jukebox keeps playing in tune with the past. No amount of quarters will allow you to skip the tracks to a park lot ballad of bruised success. As if on cue, one bank heads directly into the corner's pocket, and on every rack the eight ball's color is changing to match the intention of the winning stick. The minutes keep clocking out by the second, so as soon as the moon's engulfed, there'll be plenty of epistemology flushed down the drain. Last calls for alcohol are communions for the destitute. Take a seat, because the guys rushing to the front run the risk of tripping into a eulogy cover or inner city linked bracelets, maybe both. I've been waiting on my dish since exactly six happy years ago, and I agreed to refuse it's due to the extinction of common sense, or that I demand service from any cliche like a prophet, or that my waiter's break has persisted further than election day. A wait this long is gum stuck to the bottom of your dreams, while some jukeboxes just seem to get stuck on repeat, and the eight ball jumps back on the table before you can walk away. If it gets shaky, keep enough application to shove under the leg and hope this season ain't really started yet, so you can beat it before those other tragedies start placing their bets. See, I'm not looking for the whole lot, just a spot, or even to spot the exit door, hoping next to it an apron lays on the floor. A ticket within says resurrection to go, folded on top of the last two cigarettes turned up in the box. Thank you for reading that, Scott.
Kathy, I've seen you reference studies that show students that are in correctional facilities that are enrolled in educational programs are at least 43% more likely to stay out of prison when released and are at least 17% more likely to find employment when they return to their communities and that every dollar invested in prison education saves four to five dollars on cost of reincarceration. So there's a hard case to be made for writing programs. This isn't a form of indulgence, a sort of a liberal fantasy of indulging people in, in, in just because we're, we're soft and, and not practical about the world. I'm just wondering if you'd like to expand a little bit just on, on the value, that just the hard value of these writing programs for society at large, as well as for the individuals taking part in them. So right off the bat, I, I just want to be really clear that we strongly believe that the punishment that someone receives when they have been convicted is that they are removed from society and they are placed in prison. That is the punishment and that's where the punishment should end. So that should not take away their human rights. Education, we believe, is a human right. And I would be really remiss if I didn't say that healthcare is a human right. Right. So the we, we won't even get into the whole discussion about what COVID has done to the incarcerated population around the country, but certainly in the state of Florida. So just from the very bottom line, um, education should be offered to people who are incarcerated. Now, particularly in the state of Florida, where we've had some really severe budget cuts, the only educational program that is offered by the state that's mandatory is to be able to get your GED. So when we were creating Exchange for Change, we deliberately decided to offer something for people who already had their GEDs, right? Because there was absolutely nothing for them. And you'll see where this is going. So in my very first class, this class of 17 students, we had a, a guy named Luis Hernandez. And he's had a life sentence. He'd been incarcerated since he was, um, I think, late teens or early 20s um, and had not done much with his education. But at some point, had this epiphany that maybe he should start doing something with himself. And so he got his GED. And we were the first thing that he enrolled in after he got his GED. And he was still a little bit shaky, right? He was um, not that comfortable writing long sentences or paragraphs. Well, jump ahead um, three years, he mastered not only writing, but he mastered spoken word and became a poet. And this is where Scott met him at one of our poetry competitions, where he actually won the competition. And it was a pretty stiff competition because there's a lot of really good poets inside. And then unfortunately, right after that, he got sick um, and he ended up passing away about two years ago. But that's why we named the Prison Poet Laureate after him. So the really long official title is the Luis Hernandez Prison Poet Laureate. And Luis was an exceptional guy, but his story is not exceptional. And that is that once you see what can happen with education, it does become infectious. Now, listen, there's still people who would come up to the education building because it was air conditioned. And I get that, you know, um, somewhere in Miami and you're in a dorm with 70, 80 guys um, for days on end, no air conditioning. Yeah, you might say, all right, I'll go up to education and take a class. But then people got hooked. So 
But then the vast majority, and I always get this statistic wrong, it's like 80 or 90% of people who are incarcerated are coming back out. We are not warehouses, right? Let's offer something because even, you know, at, at the most conservative bottom line, it is a better investment to educate them than it is to warehouse them. So what we're doing is nothing. You know, I said we've, we've reached about 1,500 students. Well, there's 90-some thousand people incarcerated in the state of Florida. And I'm just talking about Florida, right? We've got all these other states who have their own issues. But yes, if people could understand this is not a charity thing, this is not a, oh, let's do, you know, do-gooder thing. This is an actual real investment in creating healthy communities, both inside and outside of the of the barbed wire. I, I, and I'm really passionate about this, as you can tell. And I think that there should be many, many, many more opportunities for people to be educated inside. Scott, um, you founded O Miami, and in particular in April, that is a month for the O Miami Poetry Festival. And I'd love it if you would talk about the community that is Miami and why you founded uh, that particular organization and what the festival is about. I founded the Poetry Festival having no idea what I was doing, which I think is how most people start nonprofit organizations because they don't know any better. Um, but I really, you know, I, I came to poetry late in life. I was actually a, you know, a journalist and then a fiction writer before that. Um, and that's what I actually went to grad school for was fiction writing, but met this poet, Campbell McGrath in grad school and fell in love with poetry. So when I graduated, I had, I just had no idea what it meant to be a poet <laughs> like out in the world. And my way of working through that was to start programming stuff, um, and organizing because I was worried that if I didn't put myself out there, I would end up being alone. <laughs> in this art form. And that kind of led me to starting the poetry festival. But but the mission was like, it, it just was poetically sounded good to me, which was we want every single person in Miami to encounter a poem during the month of April. I didn't really think through what that might mean, to be honest with you. The festival was created in 2011 and the, the goal is for everybody in Miami to encounter a poem. So it lasts for 30 days. It's kind of the opposite of a typical festival where you gather a bunch of people in a really small place who are we're all, I think, like, you know, passionate about this one thing. And instead, we do it in all 80 zip codes in Miami-Dade County. And the goal is that people within their everyday lives will encounter a poem organically, you know, whether they're waiting for the bus or they're, you know, even in the restroom, <laughs> we put poems in urinals one time. So um, 
just just anything that will get a poem in, in, in front of someone. And through doing it, um, I've learned a lot about Miami. And, and one of the things I've learned over and over is that I don't know anything about Miami. And, and that's basically my default mode is that uh, this place is a, is a, a joyful mystery to me. Um, and that's really, I think, what, what the engine of the festival is, is every year we're sort of like, okay, let's try and learn about this place all over again through the lens of poetry. And let's try and get as many people uh, involved as possible so we can, we can hear as many voices as possible. What sort of evidence are you seeing of that around you? Well, well definitely. I mean, the, the, the poems written in DCI and other facilities where Exchange for Change works is, is amazing evidence. You know, I mean, I, I think there's an ethic involved in the mission of the festival, which is every single person is worthy of the same amount of poetry, uh, which I think is true. And so if you take the mission seriously, then whether you're inside of a facility uh, or you're teaching in a college, you're entitled to the same amount of poetry in your life. Uh, which I think is something that we take to heart. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've had a, a, a number of amazing experiences of, of just meeting people and going to places in Miami that we hadn't been before. And, you know, I moved to Miami in 2005. So, I've, you know, I've only been here 12, 13 years. Uh, but everybody else on staff is pretty much a native um, who spent, you know, a few years here and there away from Miami, but they've been here the whole time. Uh, but for all of us, we're always discovering pockets of Miami that, that we didn't realize existed. Um, one of the stories I always tell is at the 2013 festival on the first event. Uh, so it was my colleague, Melody, um, who's our development director. Uh, it was her first day on the job. And we did this uh, event at Palacio de los Jugos, which is a very famous juice bar on Flagler, where we just invited people who were coming to the juice bar to write a poem on manual typewriters or on paper at these picnic tables that were on the side. And this woman came up to Melody and said, I'd like to write a poem in Spanish. And Melody said, sure, well, here's a typewriter, here's a piece of paper or pencil. And the woman said, well, no, actually, I only write poems in my head. I'm actually illiterate. Um, I don't know how to write. And so, you know, she, she started explaining this, this, her practice of poetry, which was that she writes poems and then she recites them to friends and family. And it's like they're, invented and then sort of let go in the same moment. Um, and so, you know, Melody basically copied out what the woman dictated to her and then gave it to her. And, you know, we keep having these moments where like, whatever you think about poetry or Miami, it's way bigger <laughs> than what you're ever expecting it will be. I recall another illustration and that was the rooftop poems, which seems to be in many ways the opposite in, in, some, in some ways. Would, would you share that particular um, forum of poetic expression? Yeah, I'd love to. So we, we have an education program in elementary schools where we, we teach third and fourth graders in, in Miami-Dade Public Schools poetry, and we teach it purely as self-expression. Uh, there's a curriculum, there's things that they learn, but we, we, you know, we like to say there's absolutely no rules in poetry class. Uh, it is for them to explore themselves. So kids write amazing stuff. Um, and so as soon as we started getting these poems, we realized like we had to put them places so that people could read them because they were so good. And, and this opportunity that came up through uh, an artist named Randy Berman, he came up with this idea that he wanted to put poems on top of rooftops so that people flying in and out of the airport could read them. And so we gave him a bunch of student poems and he picked a couple the one that most people have seen is the one which is on top of uh, Mono Winwood's huge warehouse, which says, I'm from a place where it does not snow, which is a poem by a poet named Naima Marshall, who was in third grade when she wrote it. 
And uh, yeah, if you're on the right side of the plane on about 70 to 80% of the flight paths out of Miami, as you go over the Atlantic, if you look on the right side of the plane, there's this poem uh, right there. So, uh, so things like that, you know, where, you know, this is a third grader and you give them the largest publishing opportunity. I think that, that exists in Miami and that's the fun of it for us. Talk about uh, changing the algorithms for um, Miami inmates. So this was a Google project, right? Yes. Yeah, so this was a lot of our projects are artist driven. We, we do a call for projects every fall and then we work with them to figure it out. So the, this poet who's based in New York named Julia Wiest proposed the idea of she wanted to um, basically manipulate the Google search terms um, and put poems so that like when you, you know, you search something like it would, it would come up with a poem instead of what it normally came up with on the, on the auto sort of response part of it. Long story short, we ended up working with Exchange for Changes students to write those poems. And we created a, a curriculum where they wrote six word poems that all started with the same stem, which was Miami inmate. And so what happened was um, in April of 2017, when we executed the project, uh, when you typed in Miami inmate, the autofill for Google suggested the poems of the Exchange for Change students instead of whatever it would normally come up with for a Miami inmate. So it was literally like hacking Google to, to show you poems as you tried to Google Miami inmate. So that, that was amazing. And the poems are so good. Like, I, I mean, anyone who writes poetry knows that the hardest poem to write is a short one <laughs> because you, you have so little space to get it right. You can't screw anything up. And they're, they're just, they're beautiful and surprising and amazing. And I didn't think it was gonna work, <laughs> but, but Julia is a wizard and, and she made it work and it really did work. What have the impacts been for Miami of the, the organization and the festival in particular? You know, that's a tough one to answer. I mean, um, to me, the impacts are always personal. You know, I mean, I think it's when I encounter someone who, for whom the festival's done something or, and those are the ones that matter to me. And I don't really know how to measure it beyond that. Um, you know, for instance, there was a, we do a program every year called Zippodes where we, we partner with our local NPR station, WLRN, to and ask people to write poems in the form of their zip code. And there was a, a girl who uh, was in high school. Uh, I think she was a freshman and she won one year. And then she actually ended up winning again the next year. <laughs> she was one of, there's always 40 or 50 winners. And at the reading, she, she came up and uh, before she read her poem, basically said that um, winning the year before and, and being recognized in the contest and getting to win, read her poem on the radio was the first time she felt at home in Miami. And, uh, you know, like that, what's going to be better than that? You know, I, I don't, I, I don't want any measurement besides that, you know, and it, there may be one, but it, it's not interesting to me. <laughs> well, that's a great setup then for my last question for each of you. And maybe Scott, you've answered it. I don't know, but I, I, I give you a moment. So I'll, I'll ask Kathy, um, 
and this can be a personal response or just a general response, but why does poetry matter? Why does writing matter? This is where I feel like I could actually get weepy when I answer this. Um, you know, it provides an opportunity for the voiceless to have a voice. Um, and it sounds so cliche, but it is really true for people who have been locked away um, and feel like they don't matter. To have someone come in and actually tell them, yeah, you do matter. You know, we know that you're in here. And I'll tell you something that was so simple. It's got I'm really moved by the example you just gave. For the first time this year, we sent Christmas cards um, to all of our students. And we copied another prison education program that was doing it. And they were very generous. And they, you know, gave us all, all of the, um, the information about how they did it. And we got responses back from our students, one of whom said, I've been incarcerated for 22 years, and this is the first piece of mail that I've ever gotten, right? How how do you respond to that? So, um, you know, Scott, I'm gonna steal your response. You know, maybe we don't need anything more than that, but there are 90 some thousand people locked away, and I'm not taking away the fact that they left victims on the outside. So we are not condoning what they've done, what they've been incarcerated for, the harm and the damage and all of that. But what we are saying is that there are 97,000 human beings that are locked away that deserve to be treated as human beings. So the impact that it's had on me has been life-changing. You know, I thought that I grew up um, in the Midwest, but then I actually realized I grew up in Haiti, and now I feel like I'm growing up in prison. So... I don't know. I may never go up before I die, but I just keep um, I just keep learning, and I'm really grateful for the opportunities. That's a great response. That's hard to top. Um, but yeah, I, I would just echo that. I mean, I think what what poetry has taught me is that um, the value of it is in the sharedness of it, um, and I think with art, a lot of the conversations we have about art are about the, uh, you know, sort of the top 0.001% of artists or what we construct as the top 0.01% of the people we think is professionalized in some capacity, but that's actually not where the power of the art form comes from. It comes from uh, people participating in it and doing it. Um, and, and I think that's what working um, in Miami's taught me is that uh, the power of the art form is not inside of the person who wins the Nobel Prize or the, or the Pulitzer or something like that. Um, and those things are nice, but, but the power of the art form is in people who are using it when they need it um, and people finding ways to express things that they couldn't express another way. And then someone else reading that and being able to pass by this impenetrable thing we all have, which is our bodies. Like no one can be inside of someone else fully and feel their emotions and thoughts. But with writing, you can kind of do that. You can get about as close to as you're going to get that way. And that's a really powerful tool. My guests today have been 
poets, teachers, and community leaders, Kathy Clarick, founder of Exchange for Change, a nonprofit teaching writing in prisons, and Scott Cunningham, founder and executive director of the O Miami Poetry Festival, which celebrates Miami, Florida through the lens of poetry. Together, they host the Florida Prison Poet Laureate Initiative. Scott and Kathy, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and just the work you're doing. Thanks for inviting us on. Yeah, thank you, Stuart. This is fun. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.